In the Kalama Sutta, the Buddha's path is said to be beautiful at the beginning, the middle, and at the end. I always interpret it that way to mean, in my own practice, the beginning was and is and continues to be the stress reduction of having in my life a meditation practice, be having a source of happiness that is coming from within, a way to detach from the dramas and the busyness of life, a break in life. Stress reduction is very important. And then for me, the middle was all that work I did and continue to do of opening up to dark, shadowy passengers in my, my emotional life and to create a safe container to hold the woundings that have happened and continue to happen in life and to have a way to process emotions safely rather than to run away from feeling life. And so that for me was the middle. And the end is nirvana and awakening. It's good to know what the goal is and to understand a little bit about what the end product or the direction that we're heading in, uh, the top of the mountain, so to speak. So there's two words to first know. Uh, nirvana, which is in Pali Nirvana, that state that is free of needless suffering. Now, Buddha said that in life we're all going to have inevitable forms of suffering. The first noble truth, he says, we're all going to know uh, old age, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair. We're all going to know physical pain. We're going to know separation from people we love. And we're going to be stuck sometimes with people we don't like so much. Hate to break it to you. <laughs> So that's going to happen, but then we, we generally make it worse by taking it personally and uh, thinking that all this stuff is our fault somehow, and then we try to escape, and then uh, we make it worse by trying to avoid the inevitable. We try to avoid feeling the sadness that's inevitable in life. We, we try to numb ourselves or use avoidance strategies, and all those things do is make life a lot more difficult. So there is a state where we don't have to do all that unnecessary suffering and where we can be with life in and of itself. Uh, we can actually handle the sufferings that need to be held and need to be faced and turned towards. Uh, enlightenment is Sambodhi in Pali, and it means the wisdom that supports Nibbana, the state of needless uh, suffering being removed. So. Enlightenment is a kind of understanding or a state of insight or awareness that helps us uh, move towards the state that of uh, liberation. So I'm going to read you some of the Buddha's quotes, and they're going to sound pretty heavy. In most of the Pali Canon, the Buddha is pretty clear. He actually doesn't speak very densely, but when it comes to the topic of Nibbana, he can get pretty abstract, and I'm going to explain why, and I'm, I'm going to parse it for you. Here he goes, Nibbana is a state beyond even the limitless dimensions of space, consciousness. It arises beyond conventional thought and perception. It is where there is no coming or going or staying still, no dying or reappearance. It is not conditioned, nor does it evolve. It is the end of suffering. And to Bahia, he says, it's a state where you stop experiencing yourself as in here, out there, 
or anywhere in between. At other points he calls Nirvana the Amata, the deathless, and Naroda Sampati, which means cessation of feeling and perception. Now, uh, the deathless might sound like the Buddha is saying that we don't die, and cessation of feeling and perception might sound like the Buddha is saying we get knocked unconscious, and he's not saying anything of the sort. First, I need to explain why he's using that abstract language. Like philosophers such as Wittgenstein and Derrida, I bet you didn't think you'd hear those names here tonight, the Buddha concluded that language was good for certain things and is not good for others. Language is great for describing properties, physical properties. If I say this Tibetan bowl is black and it's got gold indentations in it, you would be able to recognize it. If I say that my hat is red with a white uh, oval in the front of it, you'd be able to recognize my hat in comparison with yours. So it points to objects really well. When I say uh, this stick, when struck against that, makes a sound, that's a property. And it's a pretty descriptive thing, and it works pretty well. Language can help us identify and organize ourselves in the world. But what is language not very good with? It's not good at all in conveying psychological states. You may have already intuitively figured this out in your life. Let me give you an example. If I, today, how are you doing? And you might say, oh, I'm sad, I'm a little tired. Your answer would in no way convey the real inner experience of your day. Even though you said, oh, today I was sad, you might very well know that there were lots of times during the day when you weren't sad. You were bored, you were frustrated, you weren't present, you were focused on your work. Language, when we use it to describe internal states, gives the illusion of continuity where there is no continuity. If you've ever taken a long time to observe your inner states, the first thing that you will notice is flux, that what you experience is shifting. Even if you were going through, say, a severe depression or, or, or a time of anxiety in your life, what constitutes that depression will change throughout the day. Sometimes it will be felt in the body, you'll feel energy less, sometimes it will be obsessive thoughts, projecting catastrophic futures, sometimes it will just be a lack of motivation. But your depression will shift. It will not always be the same. The Buddha notes that language is extremely insufficient in describing mind states because it creates an illusion of we're in one state or another. I used to have this person I mentored who would call me up and he would say, I'm such an angry guy. And I'd say, oh, really, are you angry right now? And every time I go, all right, I'm not angry right now. <laughs> but I was angry today. And we'd walk through this day, and sure enough, there'd be times when he was angry and times when he wasn't. He was just, language created the illusion to him as he conveyed his experience and, and, and narrated his experience. It created the illusion that it was always in one state or another. So one thing that language is really bad at is it doesn't convey in any way the flow and flux of actual psychological experience. It doesn't convey feelings very well. It's very hard for people to express 
emotional feelings to other people. It also even creates a primacy of physicality over our psychological states. For instance, if you ask me, where are you right now? I would most likely say, oh, I'm on the Bowery just above Houston. But suppose my mind was thinking of Thailand. I wouldn't be here emotionally or mentally. I'd be somewhere else. But most of the time when we answer by location, we're just talking about where we are physically. So language prioritizes physical properties and physical states, and it poorly conveys emotions. And in the Buddha's path, he's always talking about psychological properties. The Buddha does not make observations about the objective world. Everything he teaches is psychological. That's a very important distinction. The default human perception we have is that there's an inside and an outside, right? You all believe that you have an eternal experience, that you have feelings, you have thoughts, and you have emotions. Pretty much each of us believe that nobody else can know really what our thoughts are, know really what our feelings are. We tend to believe that all of that stuff, because it's interior and it's not visible, is subjective. And we all tend to believe that everything outside of ourself is objective. Uh, the default belief is that if Prince, or the artist formerly known as Prince, or who was formerly known as now once again known as Prince, <laughs> walked into the room, and you all saw Prince walk into the room, we all think, oh, we would all know that Prince is here, and that would create the idea that there's an objective truth going on, that Prince is here. <laughs> we all believe that what's outside of us is objective, and everybody knows it, and it's all visible, and everybody can share it, but we believe that our internal experience is ours, and that it's ours alone. So, in mundane life, that makes kind of sense. As you walk around to work, if people say to you, hey, did you get that project done? You say, well, there is no inner or outer. They're all from the mind. <laughs> if you mistake the transcendent, what the, is called the locatura with the mundane, we'll get, in, we'll get in trouble. And it's important that we know and we live up to our responsibilities in the mundane world. And there's real issues in the mundane world that are very important. What's important is that there's also an entirely other realm where we want to experience true, lasting peace. We let go of the belief that everything outside over there is objective and everything in here is mine. Now, how do we do that and why would we do such a thing? First off, Everything you've ever seen, everything you've ever heard, everything that you ever experience is created in your mind. And that's actually a bigger statement than it might sound. Neuroscientists have long known what we actually see out there is not what's actually out there. Only about 3% of what you're seeing at any given moment is actually coming from the outside world. The other 97% is being created by expectation and by memory and by a part of the occipital lobe that creates fantasies. The exact same part of your brain that creates fantasies 
and illusions is creating what you're seeing right now. You live in, as I'll read from you a quote of a neuropsychologist, you live in a simulacrum that's created by your mind. What you see is filtered by many regions of the brain, and then the brain finally will present a couple of things that you will have a semi-accurate view of, and the rest will be created by your mind. If you want to see this at work, on YouTube there are a lot of perceptual videos. One of my favorite is the famous bouncing basketball one, where they have you watch a video and they say, count how many times the basketball gets bounced, and you watch these people bouncing a basketball, and you would count, and then at the end of the video they say, what did the person in the gorilla outfit do? People who take the test do not see the person in the gorilla outfit. What they do is they then replay it, and sure enough, somebody in the gorilla outfit walks into the middle of the basketball players, waves, and then walks off. So we're not actually seeing the world. We're just seeing the parts of the world that we believe are the most important for us to see. And much of that is entirely based on expectation. Very much of what we perceive is based on early childhood experience that happened well before we even developed narrative memory. Let me read to you Hansen and Mendius. Much of what you see out there is actually manufactured by your brain, painted in like a computer-generated graphics in a movie. Only a small fraction of the inputs to your occipital lobe comes directly from the external world. Your brain simulates the world. Each of us lives in a virtual reality that's close enough to the real thing that we don't bump into the furniture. Each of us is living in a subjective external presentation. But on the other hand, our inner subjective experience is not what we think it is. When I ask you, are your thoughts, your feelings, and your emotions your own, you will probably say yes. Nobody can really know my feelings, my emotions, my thoughts. But there are a very limited amount of emotions that human beings feel. They show up in largely the same facial expressions and body sensations. Not only that, but Dawkins demonstrated that most of the thoughts that we think are flowing from one mind to the next. The thoughts that we believe we have are actually transpersonal. What we think is the objective world out there is not objective. The subjective inner experience that we claim to be our own and unknowable by others is in fact very knowable by other people. We are not experiencing unique thoughts or emotions or feelings. I don't care how much we believe our life has been filled with. We can have different forms of pains at different times, but all human beings know separation, rejection, shame, abandonment, disappointment, frustration. So from this level, from the level of the transcendent, the idea that there's some inner experience that's subjective that you don't, that other people can't know is false, and that the objective world around us is seeable by everybody is also false. All of it is being created by the mind. And what the Buddha was pointing to is that the more we focus in our meditation, the more we get into a certain state of dropping the normal day-to-day -day perceptions, what we begin to see 
is the mind everywhere. The first words in the Buddha's Dhammapada was, the mind authors everything. I want to make it very clear that there's two realms. There's the transcendent Lokatura realm where we're trying to get beyond dualistic thinking and inner and outer. And this is the direction that we take when we want to experience the end of the path. On the other hand, there's a very real other realm. It's not actually lower. It's just another realm, which is the mundane realm, where there is difference, where there is inner and outer, where there is suffering that happens due to people's gender, their people of color experience enormous forms of oppression and marginalization in our culture, where there's enormous mistreatments of immigrants, where there is enormous suffering based on identity. And that's, and anybody who pretends that they're all spiritual and that that doesn't happen is full of it. But I'm talking right now about realm, which the Buddha called the Lokatura. So, what we find, first of all, is that this belief that nobody can see or understand my feelings creates isolation, creates a sense of that I'm different. And when we let go of that, there's a freedom. When we then begin to focus on moment-by-moment present experience, just noting what is happening right now, something very interesting begins to happen. We begin to experience reality as vibrating, pulsing, almost the frames of a movie. And there's words in Pali for this. There's this beginning to see the mind creating the world around us. We begin to see how the mind is painting in everything that we are experiencing. And the idea that anything we experience is objective falls away. Any place you bring your attention, you will start, the mind will start to fill in the sensations and start to create a different picture. So the more we become present, the more we begin to see again and again and again that process. Also, from another perspective, you noted that at the beginning the Buddha said that there's no coming or going or staying still. Well, if we let go in meditation of that inner and outer and we just hold all of the sensations as happening without fixating on this little shell and saying just in here is mine and everything out there is not mine, just in here is what is personal and out there is impersonal, if we let go of that, then we start to let go of that idea of there's any place to go, there's anything to do, there's anything to accomplish. We even let go of the sense that there's anything missing in our life because we realize that everything, everything we want to attain, all the stories we believe that are out there are always happening in our mind. There's nothing to attain. There's nowhere to go. We are always in the fullness of our mind. This is heavy, but work with me. (laughs) It's pretty heavy, and it's pretty amazing state. So why do we want to taste nirvana? Basically, 
most of the joys and pleasurable events that we chase after in life, what the Buddha called the eight worldly winds, all have downsides to them. If we experience the pleasure of financial gain, we'll also experience the uh, edginess and anxiety of financial loss. If we experience or chase after the uh, joys of people-pleasing, then we'll also experience times when we meet disapproval. If we chase after pleasurable sensations, we'll also experience, of course, times of pain. There's always a flip side to most of the mundane pleasures. But there is no flip side to nirvana. There's no negative. You don't wake up the next day feeling regretful that you've achieved uh, unconditional peace of mind based on letting go of some of the basic assumptions that we bring to perception. So, there is no negative. It's a sublime peace. That's why it's worth putting in some effort towards it. If you're really present right now, if you're really attuned to what's going on in your life right now, then there is no story about death. And because so long as you're sitting with me right now and you're fully aware, you're not dead. I hate to break it to you. You're alive. <laughs> to know about death, to bring death into the picture, you have to abandon the present and start narrating again and start dropping your awareness of what's happening right here and right now. And you have to go into some future that's unknowable. So from one perspective, simply the Buddha said becoming heedful is the way out. I'm going to tell you, though, the, if you want to taste any of this stuff, I'm going to give you the menu and the ingredients that the Buddha put in the Pali Canon. He didn't hide it. You don't have to pay 19.95. You don't have to send away to some address. There's no guru you have to go to in the Himalayan mountains. It's all there. And not only is it all there, but I'm going to give it to you in a nutshell, so you don't even have to be bothered like me to read the, the damn stuff. <laughs> you get actually the nutshell version of how to attain a glimpse of enlightenment. I'm going to get my coffee because this is going to take a uh, bolt of uh, coffee for me to, to state. All right, so you got this nice almond milk. Uh, oh, I should probably shake this up. Okay, here we go. What, how do you become enlightened? <laughs> it goes like this. You direct... There's two main descriptions, and one is the body sensations and one is the breath. I'm going to give you the breath. You can do it with the body sensations. You can even do it with meta phrases, but I'm just going to give it to you with the breath and you can just substitute whatever anchor you want to work with. So the first thing you do is you bring your awareness to your breath. And the first jhana is you focus your attention and focus on the breath and you work with the breath so that it becomes really, 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 really pleasant. Find a breath that feels really, really good to you. So you keep doing that for a while until you develop some pleasure which is called Piti and Sukha in Pali. So you've got this pleasure and rapture going, which feels pretty darn good. And you're pretty pleased with yourself. But then what you've got to do is begin to drop all the directed effort into making the breath really comfortable. And you just stay with the breath as it is. And eventually, all the pleasure that came from making the breath and everything about it really comfortable will begin to fade and you wind up just with yourself 
breathing, fixated on the present moment, so you're comfortable, you're with the breath, you're present, and you're just breathing. At this point, you let go of focusing on the breath, and you turn your awareness in on itself, so you begin to focus your awareness on consciousness or awareness itself. So you begin to explore the limitless quality of consciousness and how great it is at times to be in consciousness when there's no thoughts. And hopefully by this point, if you've been really relaxing yourself, and this, is hap- this takes a while to get to, but you're not thinking a lot at this point. You're just exploring what it's like to be conscious, to be aware, but you're not adding a whole lot of storytelling about it. And eventually, if you let go of the sense of inner and outer, you're just conscious, and the Buddha says you reach this pretty profound state, which has got a really awkward, stupid name, which is called neither perception nor non-perception, which means you're aware that things are happening, but you're not giving them labels or stories or anything. You're not doing what you normally do with life, where you're saying, oh, I like this, I don't like this, this is great, this is bad. You're not telling the story. You're just with everything. You're not claiming anything is here is mine and anything out there is not mine. You're just aware of awareness. And as things happen and they pass, you are aware of it, but you're not even giving it labels anymore. At that point, you drop the slightest bit of effort and you just open up to that experience without putting any effort into it. And at that moment, you get to the refined state of Naroda Sampati, which is cessation. You are no longer annotating your life, taking your life personally, getting stressed out about your life, adding suffering to your life. You are just experiencing being present without any effort or strain or stress or resistance. (laughs) And at that point, if you're really lucky, you've tasted Nibbana. And then guess what? You leave it. (laughs) And you come back from the retreat or the great retreat by the lake and you wind up back in your job and people say stupid things to you and you get all stressed out. And then you got to go back to the middle and the beginning of the path where you work on stress reduction and breathing through difficulty and you feel the difficult emotions and you're back in the work of being a human being amongst other human beings. So this end of the path is blissful, it's joyous, it's wonderful, and it's worth experiencing. But at the same time, as one Buddhist teacher said, after you get there, you still got to do the laundry. That's about it. In the one hand, it's a beautiful thing to reach for. On the other hand, it's important that I demystify it for you. It's all available. Some people, they say, will know full enlightenment and will be ajans. But I don't... I'm perfectly happy always working on the beginning, the middle, at the end, and not believing that I'm ever going to get in any of those states forever. It's just an ongoing process.